Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 31 this morning. Looks like everybody's getting close, so let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning grateful that we can call on your name, that we get to sing your praises, that we get to open your word. And we get to be called your children. And Lord, as there's much hurting going on, as the prayer requests this morning have indicated, I pray uh, that we would uh, seek peace, knowing that you are sovereign, you are in control. Uh, and Lord, that you have a plan that we don't always understand, but we can trust that you are good and you are wise and that you love us. And Lord, sometimes... <coughs> life hurts. Uh, we're getting ready to see uh, persecution uh, once again and we get to see Saul as he is converted and deals with persecution on the other end of it. We see him trusting you and I pray that you would help us to do that this morning as well. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So here we are in Acts chapter 9, and Luke is going to uh, pick back up with the theme of the severe persecution that the church uh, was going through that he started talking about in the first few verses of Acts chapter 8. And if you'll remember, we saw that persecution, the church scattered, and then he went on this really awesome tangent about Philip and how he evangelized out of that persecution. But here, we're going to get back to that persecution and we're going to remember that a man named Saul was ravaging the church. At this point, we don't know a great deal about Saul. I didn't take the time at the point since he was just sort of a little uh, end note. Uh, about that. We don't know much about him other than that he was terrorizing the church. But as we go through the book of Acts, we will learn more about him. Uh, and in fact, we learn this in Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, he's, he's giving his testimony. He's talking about who he was before Christ. And he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of uh, Cilicia, and brought up in this city, and when he's talking about this city, he's in Jerusalem when he's giving this talk. And so brought up in this city, so he's talking about Jerusalem there. And he says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which we heard a little bit about him where he said, he spoke up as the disciples were being, or the apostles were being persecuted. He said, guys, if, if we go against this and this is of God, then we're making ourselves enemies of God. But if it's of man, it's just going to peter out anyway. So that was just a little cap that we saw about him. But he was one of the um, most well-known rabbis of the first century. He was very well respected. And so Paul studied at his feet. 
according to the strictness of ancestral law. He says, I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole councils of elders can testify about me. All right, and then if you go to the next chapter, he's again talking about his life. And he says in Acts 23, 6, he says, we learn that Saul was a Pharisee. He says, I, I was a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So he's got lineage in uh, being a Pharisee. And so Saul is a Jew from Tarsus and a Roman citizen. Right? We don't know that yet, but, uh, and that doesn't mean anything to us now, but it's going to come up later in Acts. So just put that back in where you keep your Bible trivia in the back of your mind. He is a Roman citizen. That's going to come up again later. And he was educated in the Torah, like I said, by one of the most respected rabbis of the first century. So this guy is elite. All right? One of the best of the best. And in the pursuit of his education, he became a Pharisee who was zealous for God. And in his zeal, that's what made him so passionate about seeing the church of Jesus Christ stamped out of existence because he sees their teaching as blasphemy against Yahweh. Now he thinks everything that he's doing is good. And blasphemy is not to be tolerated. Leviticus 24.16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The community, the whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. Now we look at all that Saul did and we look at it in disgust. But he and his contemporaries would have looked at it at, with praise. Like you're going against the people who are against our God. These people are blaspheming against the name of Yahweh and what he's doing, he thought he was doing with the approval of the Lord. And so Saul goes from house to house, searching out Christians all over Jerusalem. And when he finds them, he drags both men and women and throws them in prison for believing that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world. And, this, and his hope is that every single one of these people, man and woman, that he drags out of here, that he imprisons for their faith, he hopes that they will find the same fate that Stephen found when he was stoned to death at the, ends of, the end of Acts chapter 7. Every man and woman he's dragging out, he is desiring their death because in his mind they are going against his God. But... As we're about to see in our passage this morning, even the most passionate, even the most well-educated, religious or irreligious person on the planet is not beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that should get an amen from somebody. Right? There is no sin that cannot be covered by his sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf. And we're about to see Saul of Tarsus in all of his zeal as he persecuted the church, we're going to see that zeal flipped 180 degrees as he becomes one of the most important people in the history of the church. I mean, this is amazing. So beginning in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so as Acts 8 stated, because of the persecution that started in Jerusalem, many people fled to the surrounding areas. And Damascus was way up north of Jerusalem. And in order to arrest people that belonged to the way, Saul goes to the high priest and he requests what we would think of as extradition papers. Right? So if one of our criminals goes to another state, sometimes we have to approach the other state and say, hey, we'd like to have him back. And so that's what he's doing here. He is letting these papers are going to let the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus know that when Saul shows up and starts kicking in doors and starts dragging people out of their house, he has the approval of the high priest. Right? I mean, your local government's probably not going to be okay with some random dude just showing up, busting into houses and dragging people out and trying to arrest them. Uh, you have to show that you have the authority to do that, and this is what Saul is attempting to get here. He's going to the high priest, and he wants the approval to do this. And we're not told this, but apparently Saul gets his paperwork because he makes his way towards Damascus, but we're about to see that his trip doesn't turn out the way he thought it was going to. In verses 3 through 9, it says, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. So as Saul is traveling towards Damascus, Jesus interrupts his trip. All right, he interrupts this trip by appearing to him. There's this blinding light from heaven and Jesus speaks saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't know who this is. He says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> right? No clue as to what's going on here. And the men he's traveling with are speechless because they see what's happening to Saul. Right? He falls to the ground. He's cowering in fear. And they hear what's going on, but Jesus doesn't appear to them. So they don't see any of this. All they hear is all that's going on. They see Saul cowering in fear from something and they have no idea what he's cowering from. And Saul asks Jesus who he is and he replies that he is Jesus, the one who Saul is persecuting and then gives instructions to go into the city telling him that he will be told what to do once he gets there. Now, I can't imagine what must have been going through everyone's mind in this moment, especially Saul. Saul just came face to face with the, the risen Christ. I mean, like face to face with the risen Christ. Glorified body and all. Like shows up shining so bright that it blinds the man. This is what he just saw. The experience cost him his sight. It was more than his eyes could bear. The men Saul was with 
had to lead him by the hand in Damascus. Saul was blind for three days. And for those three days, he just spent the time fasting from food and water. And these verses, I mean, that's all there, there is. I mean, Luke just kind of just lets that go. I'd like to hear a little bit about what Saul thought about this experience. But we get none of that. But there are a couple of things that I want to mention here, some things about Jesus specifically. Number one, the most obvious thing is that Jesus is alive. Right? Jesus is alive. Saul realizes that Jesus is not dead. You know he's heard about this man. You know that he just figured that he was another kook who thought he was God. I mean, that show pops up from time to time. People like that make the news every now and then, right? This guy thinks he's the reincarnated Jesus or whatever. Like, we hear that. And I'm sure that stuff like that happened from time to time in Saul's day. And Saul would have known, though, that Jesus was crucified. Right? I'm sure that he knows that all this uproar that happened throughout Jerusalem happened because of his life and death and... Now he's trying to kill the people that believe that this man rose from the dead. And he's trying to stamp all that out. He doesn't want this story moving forward from this place because he believes that it's blasphemy against his faith. He's trying to kill this ridiculous notion that Jesus could be the promised Messiah because no Messiah is going to die on a Roman cross. Like the idea to Saul is absolutely ludicrous. And then, boom, all of a sudden, here's Jesus. Glorified body, shining so intensely that Saul's blinded by the light. I mean, this reality is a game changer for Saul. He suddenly realizes it's, it's true. Everything that these people are saying is true. Everything that the Christians who he has been persecuting have been saying about Jesus is true. Jesus has stood before his eyes. And even though Saul cannot see, he now sees the truth better than he ever has in his whole life. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is alive. He will say this later in his letter to the Corinthian church. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Right? The fact that Jesus is alive is the linchpin of our faith. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22. Uh, and when you're, if you follow along, if you happen to read that, pay close attention to verses 14 and 20. And I'll put some emphasis on that as I read it. It says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. No alive Jesus, no Christian faith. All right, verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. 
This is verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is convinced of this truth. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrected Christ changed everything for Saul. Everything. And it changes everything for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection enable sinners to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Right? The, the gap has been bridged so that we can be back in relationship with God the Father. God showed us grace and mercy by sacrificing His Son on our behalf. And Jesus' resurrection proves that it was all good. His resurrection shows that the sacrifice was accepted. And because the sacrifice was accepted, then you and I can also be accepted. Not on any of our merit, not because of anything that we've done, but on everything that Jesus has done. Jesus is alive. And the second thing to notice here about Jesus that I'll mention very briefly is that he identifies with the church. Jesus doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And if you mess with the church, you're messing with Jesus. And Jesus may allow it. Right? He might allow people to come in and persecute the church. But if he does allow it, it's just so that he can fulfill his plan. Right? This persecution that happened only happened because he wanted that message to go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's allowing persecution to be the vehicle that sends this stuff out. But he is not okay with this. And if we mess with the church, you can be sure that we are messing with Jesus. And that's not something that any of us want to do. So let's continue. Verses 10 to 18. It says, There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, To the house of Judas, and ask for a man from, from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the Lord. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So in these verses, we see the Lord 
commissioning a disciple named Ananias to go to Saul and lay hands on him to heal him of his blindness that happened through seeing the risen Lord. Right? So through God's power, Ananias is going to be able to heal the blindness that occurred in that encounter. And when Ananias hears who he's going to be healing, he has some concerns. Right? Uh, I love Ananias' honesty in verse 13. Right? He offers up a prayer back to the Lord and says, Lord, you know, like I've heard of this man. This guy's not a good dude. Like we, this would be like, you know, in, in our terms and what we would understand, it would be like someone saying, hey, go to Osama bin Laden's house and lay hands on him. He's blind right now, but when you lay hands on him, he's going to be able to see you and he knows your name. So go do that for me, right? We're going to hesitate for a moment. I don't know how, you know, no matter how faithful we are, we're going to pause for just a moment, Right? Ananias is afraid that if he reveals himself to Saul, he could be the next person to be thrown into prison and killed. Right? That's what the man is here to do. We don't know how Ananias knows this, but apparently Saul's purpose has made its way to Damascus before Saul got there. Right? Ananias knows. He has paperwork from the high priest to allow people to be arrested from here. And so he's nervous. But God calms Ananias' fears by telling him that Saul is not the man that he used to be. Right? You know the man that, that came you know, 20 minutes ago before he met me on, on the road to Damascus. But now this, this guy is different. He is now going to be used by God to take his name before Gentiles kings and Israelites and Saul's life is about to change significantly and some of those changes are not going to be pleasant right it says clearly that God intends for Saul to suffer for his faith and when we hear that we need to be very clear very very clear that this suffering is not retribution right this suffering is not punitive Saul is not suffering because of what he did to the church. Right? So when Saul met Jesus, when Saul came to faith in Christ, there was forgiveness for his sins. His sins were forgiven. And if God were then to come back on him and punish him for the sins that have been forgiven, he would be unjust because then the penalty for that sin would have been paid twice. And the penalty has already been paid at the cross through Jesus. And so what we see in Saul's suffering is that all who are faithful to take the message of the gospel into a world that is hostile to the gospel are going to suffer for their faith. And this is going to be the guy. Right? This is the missionary. This is the evangelist. And because of that, and because he's going to be faithful, it is going to be known that he's going to suffer because he's going to do everything that God has called him to do. Jesus was clear throughout his mystery, uh, ministry that his disciples will be persecuted because of his name. 
Matthew 10, 22 says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. John 15, 18 to 20, If the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So his suffering is because he's being faithful to the mission. And so Ananias is obedient to God's call. And he goes to Saul and he treats him as a brother in Christ. And I love that. Right? He lays hands on him and he says all the things that God told him to say. And then all of a sudden you have this man who was... You know, at one moment an enemy and now he's a brother. Right? At one moment you've got fear and terror of this man coming into your house and dragging you off to prison. And now Ananias is laying hands on him and he's calling him brother. Just like that. Because of the power of the gospel. And when Ananias does this, something like scales falls off of his eyes and Saul regains his sight and is baptized. And now the terror of the church is a brother in Christ. And God's promise of Saul's suffering begins almost immediately. We see that in verses 19 to 25. There it says, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. And so what, we, what we're seeing here is that Saul's zeal for the things of God didn't change when he became a Christian. Right? His focus just shifted. Right? He is still a zealous, intelligent man who is passionate about the things of God. And so he immediately heads into the synagogues there in Damascus and he begins to uh, proclaim Jesus to as the Son of God there. And this confuses the people. They're like, wait, isn't this our guy? I thought he was on our team. And yet he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. He came here to arrest the people that were doing that. And now he's doing that. We don't, we don't get it. But he keeps getting stronger. And like I said, he's a smart guy. And so the Jews in Damascus are confounded by his arguments. He's proclaiming Jesus. They don't know what to do with it. And so they do what they do. And they try to kill him. Right? When, when the ability to out-argue that someone fails, the Jews just decide they die. And that's what they're trying to do here. Saul finds out about this plot and with some help from the disciples in Damascus, he escapes out of the wall through a basket. Right? So they lower him down out of a basket. 
And at this point, according to Galatians 1, you would never know this just by reading uh, Acts chapter 9, but according to Galatians 1, we have a three-year jump from verse 25 to 26. All right, you got to read Galatians 1 to see that. But in Galatians 1, verse 17, Saul, who then goes by Paul, says that he made his way to Arabia and then back to Damascus for three years before going to Jerusalem. All right, so we're about three to four years down the road, okay, from verse 26 to verse, or verse 25 to verse 26. But to Jerusalem, Saul does go. Verses 26 to 31, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, uh, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraging, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And so what we're seeing here is that Saul will have to live with the consequences and the guilt and the shame that comes with his actions towards his now brothers and sisters in Christ for the rest of his life. Right? That shame is not there from Christ. All right? Paul will tell us that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So all that guilt and all that shame has been washed away under the blood of Jesus. But yet we still remember the things that we've done. We still remember the people that we've hurt. And even though... He understands there's no condemnation from God for his actions. There's always temptation from Satan to point us back to our past failures in order to try to keep us from future victory. He's always trying to weigh us down, always trying to remind us of our failures. And I'm sure this approach to Jerusalem stung quite a bit as he goes there and he tries to join the disciples only to find out that they were afraid of him. I mean, we don't know what those three years looked like for him, but here he is, you know, having to be lowered out of a window in a wall in a basket to avoid being killed by people because he's professing the name of Jesus. And then to try to go up and see his brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem and nobody wants to have anything to do with him because they're afraid. They think he's a spy. They didn't believe he was a disciple. They thought maybe he was just trying to infiltrate their ranks so that they could... He could arrest them, come after their leadership. But then Barnabas, though, good old Barnabas, right? The son of encouragement, a name that we should strive to have for ourselves, took Saul and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the Damascus road and how he boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus there. Sometimes it's hard for us to live down our past, right? Sometimes people will never be able to see us other than the person who we used to be. Right? But in Christ, the old person has died and we are raised to new life. Still struggle, goodness gracious, still struggle with a lot of the same sin that I have struggled with for, you know, 
32 years, but not the, not the person that I used to be. And Barnabas gave Saul the opportunity to be the new man among the disciples. Barnabas was willing to step into relationship with this man despite the possible consequences of that. And he was willing to bridge that gap. I have no idea how he came to know so much about Saul's life. But as believers in Christ, it's our duty to find out these things and to treat people well no matter what. Right? Barnabas was willing to put his well-being aside because he loved Jesus. And he walked into relationship with Saul enough to find out what happened. Right? From terrorist to brother, tell me your story. And we should be willing to do that. Is that going to come back to bite us from time to time? Absolutely. Have churches brought people in and invited them into membership and realized that was not a good idea? Absolutely. That's what church discipline is for. That's what the body of Christ is for, to guard one another in all of that. So most certainly that's going to bite us from time to time, but we have been called to make sacrifices for the good of the kingdom of God. Personal sacrifices where we walk in relationship knowing that that relationship might hurt. And God will protect us when he knows that we need protecting, and he will allow us to be stung by that when somehow being stung by that pushes his mission and message to other people that need to hear it. Right? We are called to show the love of Christ to everyone, even our enemies, even the ones that could potentially do harm to us. But Barnabas, he goes to bat for Saul in Jerusalem, and they began to accept him. It says that he was coming and going with them as they were speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And once again, he confounds the Hellenistic Jews, and they try to kill him. Right? They run out of the ability to argue, and so they go to physical attack. And this leads to Saul's journey toward Caesarea and Tarsus. Saul's journey as a follower of Christ has not been a long one at this point, only a handful of years. And we don't know exactly, but a handful. And yet, it has already been fraught with danger. And this is just the beginning. Right, this is, I mean, if you see his resume, I mean, this is nothing so far. It's about to get significantly worse because he is faithful with the message of God. The church, though, it says, had peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding as the followers of Christ lean into Jesus for all things. Right? They grew in the fear of the Lord. It says they were living in that fear of the Lord and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit and their numbers increased. So what do we do here? All right, to wrap up, a little bit of application for us all. Number one, one of my favorite things about the book of Acts uh, and especially about Saul's conversion is that the gospel can save everyone. There's no one who is too far gone that has rebelled against God with everything they have, running away as hard as they can. Like, there is no one that is too far for God to save. There's no sin that's so significant that the blood of Christ can't 
cover it. Saul is a prime example. I mean, he has the blood of martyrs on his hands. And yet God said, that one is mine. That one will serve me. That one will suffer for my name. I'm taking that one. And that one he took. With this in mind, I, I hope, I hope that you have relationships in your life with non-believers. Right? Some of them might not be by choice, but you should have those relationships. And I hope that you are praying diligently for their salvation. No matter how far gone they may seem to be, Saul indicates that they too can come to faith in Jesus. No one is too far gone. And if you don't have any relationships with non-believers, what are you doing with your life? Like that is your sole purpose to glorify God is to build those relationships and share the gospel. And then pray that prayer that these people will come to faith. Number two, Jesus identifies with the church and so should you. All right? I, there are times when I think that people take their membership with the church far too lightly. And when they become members of a church, they walk through it and sometimes cause tons of problems within the church and they think that this is fine. But Jesus looked at Saul and said, why are you persecuting me? Right? When, when we come in and we call there's when there's strife in the church, when there's gossip and backstabbing and slander in the church, you need to get out of this mindset of I'm just I'm just bothering that person. No, you're bothering Jesus. You're persecuting Jesus. Right? When we become part of the body of Christ. We are aligning ourselves not only with Jesus, but with one another. And we need to take that relationship seriously. And then we need to be very careful to make sure that we are loving one another the same way that we would love Christ. And when there's problems in the church, we need to be very careful to go and make sure that we can reconcile those relationships so that we don't have disunity in the church. Right? When we foster that, when we build up with that in our hearts like we are coming against God. Number three, be like Ananias, Barnabas, and Saul. And I've got reasons for each one of those. Ananias, though he was afraid, was obedient to God. And he did what he was told. And he treated Saul like a brother. Right? Sometimes God calls us to do things that we're not sure about. Lord, are you sure? And it's okay. It's okay to ask, God, are you sure? And when God says, yeah, I'm sure, then we be obedient. We do the thing that God has called us to do. Right? Ananias did that. Barnabas. Barnabas is an encourager. Barnabas sees the best in people. Right? When Saul shows up and the other people don't want to have anything to do with Saul... Barnabas is the guy that tries to bridge that gap, right? He's a bridge between two people as he tries to see the best in each other. And so we're going to see a, an example of this even later in the book of Acts where there's a problem with John Mark. 
and he bails on a, on a mission and Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. Barnabas says, I'll take him and we'll go this way, you go that way. And eventually there's reconciliation, but Barnabas said, yeah, the kid failed, but that shouldn't be the end of our relationship with him. And he restores that relationship, right? So we should be an encourager. We should see the best in people. We should be someone that brings people together, all right? That's Barnabas. And lastly, Saul. Saul has a zeal for the things of God that is basically unmatched in all of Scripture, right? There is no one that, I mean, really did much more for the church other than Jesus, Right? And that was in the face of knowing how much he was going to have to suffer. Right? God didn't make that questionable. He was told, this is what you will suffer for my name. And he went forward knowing that he was going to be abused. That he was going to suffer. That he was going to struggle. That it was going to be hard. And because he saw... What he says in Romans 8, 18, that the suffering that we experience in this life is not worth being compared to the glory that we will see in heaven. He lived that out. And that should be us as well. We should be people that are obedient to God even when we're afraid. We should be people who are encouraging and bridging gaps between people. And we should be people who are zealous for the things of God even when it's hard. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this narrative of Saul's conversion. I think about, I got names and faces. Of people who are far from you. That have no desire for you. that seem to have no hope for you. And yet, Saul's conversion reminds me that nothing is too difficult for you and these people's lives are not too far out of your reach. And if they will repent of their sin, they will find salvation. And I pray that you will, you will do that. And Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, we would have an increased love for the church and that we would take on the characteristics of Ananias and Barnabas and Saul as we get about your mission, as we show how much we love you and are committed to you and how much we love the lost and are committed to seeing the lost come to faith. So Holy Spirit, please encourage us. Please change our hearts if there's anything in us that is hindering us from this, from this mission. And help us to go from this place and serve you well. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.